I'm Liam Printer and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bienvenidos, Falcha, and welcome to the Motivated Classroom podcast. I am really excited and looking forward today to a very special episode. I have the wonderful Gianfranco Conti in front of me here on a screen in another country, but willing to talk to me about all things language learning. So Gianfranco, ciao, how are you? Ciao, benissimo. Fantastic, thank you. Excellent. Good, good. So we'll be straight back to John Franco. But once, of course, we're here in the Motivated Classroom podcast, so we will start with our little bit of Irish for the day, as we always do. So today's word is Rivera. Now, the word Rivera in Irish means computers. It doesn't sound anything really like the English form, the Spanish form, the French form. Quite an unusual word. So there you go. The word for today is Rivera, meaning computers in Irish. Now, before we go into our questions with John Franco, I just want to say a quick Guramila Mahagav. Thank you to all of you for downloading this podcast and for listening in. I know many people are excited to hear from John Franco and what he's got to say to us. So before we go over and talk to John Franco, I want to try and introduce him. Now, this is always the part that is very difficult to do, especially for someone like John Franco, who is so active in the language teaching and language learning world. But I'll try my best. So John Franco Conti taught English, French, Spanish, Italian and German for over 25 years. He's been a university lecturer. He holds a master's degree in TEFL and a PhD in applied linguistics. At the moment, he is now an author, an independent educational consultant, and he's very active in the professional development world. In 2015, he was awarded the TESS Best Resources Contributor Award. He is the co-author of the best-selling books for language teachers, The Language Teacher Toolkit, Breaking the Sound Barrier, and Memory, What Every Language Teacher Should Know. And you'll probably recognise some of those titles from Steve Smith, who was also on the podcast earlier, and John Franco and Steve have written many books together. He's recently co-authored with Dylan Vignales and and Jessica a popular series of vocabulary building books based on his lexical grammar approach and he's the founder and owner of the language learning platform Language Gym and I will put all of the links to this in the program notes afterwards so a huge amount of experience and one of the things Gianfranco talks a lot about is an approach called EPI and that's where we're going to start I'd just like to hear Gianfranco could you tell us a little bit about the EPI approach what is it how does it work and, and where did it come from well uh, the EPI approach is basically stands for extension processing instruction and where it comes from is really the, uh, the, the the need that I felt over the years a bit like where you're coming from which is trying to really build students motivation self-efficacy and especially working in England whereby you have high mixability classes you've got kids who unfortunately are not as motivated as they should be because of the culture the peer the social situation social political I would say situation and plus of course uh, many other factors that we all very conversant with. So I felt like we needed to do something else, something that would actually get the student to develop that intrinsic motivation that you always talk about. And to me, the starting point was making sure that the kids were not left behind by approaches which may work with a certain type of child, highly motivated, upper middle class, maybe with an analytical cognitive style, who likes to put things into into abstract categories and move from an intellectual approach, which basically, as one of your idols, Stephen Krashen says, develops learning as in acquisition of intellectual knowledge, but not acquisition of fluency, which is really should be what everyone in that journey from input to output that learning is should aim at. Instead, I found over the years from my teacher training onwards that it was very much the sort of a grammar-based approach 
uh, which excludes a lot of kids from the get-go. I wanted to, f to get students on board who normally feel it felt excluded. So I, I didn't create anything massively original, the idea of lexicogramma and using chunks and trying to uh, work on the subconscious part of learning, which is as important as the conscious one. In fact, you might argue that with kids of low ability or even average ability, to be honest, and average to low motivation, you might want to uh, appeal to that part of the brain by gamifying instruction, by exaggerating the, uh, the occurrence of uh, uh, the chunks of language that you want them to absorb subconsciously, priming them very much like the mother and the father does with their children in the in the living room or in the bedroom when they tell the story or in the, and the idea is to provide attentional frames to students in their lessons to a specific set of chunks which are used in real life to convey a communicative function describing people, comparing and contrasting, describing a routine, very much the communicative language teaching approach, but using an approach to getting that language inside the student head, which is not the traditional PPP, where by a presentation, practice, production in the same lesson, where you get students who get to the end of the lesson and half of them are not reading to talk, they're just basically reading aloud. So it defies the purpose of a communicative approach because if you want to get the student to talk, then you need to empower them and get them in, in, in a position where they can talk. So the idea of extensive processing instruction, hence the name, is to bombard them to comprehensible input, almost ad nauseum, because in, real, in reality, there's such a variety of activities which target specific micro skills of listening and reading so that the, the teacher is introducing very much like you would normally do uh, the, uh, the, the, the new language chunks or uh, sentence patterns, whatever you want to call it, explicitly through uh, what I call a sentence builder, other people call it differently. But the idea is getting them to process this uh, language over and over again in a targeted way so that you're basically deliberately hitting specific micro skills, for instance, uh, focusing the kids on the sound, on the lexis, on the very important skill of segmenting, identifying the boundaries on words, very much bombarding them through the oral medium as opposed to going straight into reading and writing and unfortunately often is done and by building through a sequence which are called Mars ears you basically lead them from modeling to spontaneity using a principled framework and the grammar which i do believe helps you know very much like krashen says grammar can be used to edit when you write but never when you speak you don't have the time unless you're a genius exactly so the idea is that grammar is something that you sensitize them to at the end of a sequence. So the kids have built self-efficacy, enjoyment for the language. You'll be very, very cognizant of cognitive load so that you ensure that what you actually teach is learnable through in incrementally challenging uh, sequences, which always build on, on the previous one. So you, you, every single task primes the next, not random like textbooks do, but there is a, a deliberate design to each sequence whereby you go from input to output 
and then eventually you focus on what we call fluency building, where you automatize that use of, uh, of chunks. And with low ability kids, you won't even unpack those chunks. You'll be happy with them and the kids can just do it. That's fantastic. And it, and it ties in so closely with so many things we talk about in this in this podcast. Just as you said, I love the word you used, bombardment, which is a fantastic word to talk about that flooding of compelling, interesting inputs. And as you say, they're building their skills from each lesson to the next. And I think what's really important for the language teachers listening to this, who are maybe new to listening to this approach, is what you mentioned about there is grammar present, but it's happening more at the end than it is at the beginning, which I find really interesting. And I think one one of the things I'd like to ask is that imagine that you have a teacher who has uh, who has never experienced this way of learning or a language teacher who's never done it this way before and they walked into a classroom with a teacher who's really quite good at the EPI approach and they, they've been doing it for a few years and they know what they're doing. What would that classroom feel like to them? What would it look like when they walk in? What kind of activities would be going on in a typical classroom where EPI is happening? I love this question, Liam, because... The answer was given to me so many times uh, by messages on Twitter, on Facebook, completely spontaneously by people who write to me. And I, I mentioned this lady, I hope she doesn't mind me, man. I won't mention the name, but she's from Canberra. She's an enthusiast. She's one of those people that, you know, she's so passionate about language learning and she's so enthusiastic. And she said to me, Gianfranco, people come into my classrooms because they hear the noise and the noise they hear is the noise of happiness. Ah, because so nice. at the end of the day, it's all about dynamics. So for instance, I'll give an example. At the beginning of the sequence, very much like TPRS, the child and the, and the teacher are constantly interacting, except that they're mini whiteboards in their hands and it's constant interaction because in EPI we believe that you should be the teacher nurturer and not the tester. So it's not about playing an audio track and the student head down, but very much like, again, crushing that I used to disagree with so much. Now I'm finding myself actually liking him and realizing that a lot of the things he was saying were right. Teaching to the eyes is so important. That's how the mother, father teaches to the child, the grandparents. It's, it's the way we learn through the auditory means but with the eyes and many gestures which facilitate comprehension, the tone of voice, the feedback that you give them. This is so priceless rather than the lazy approach which no other teachers in any other subject would take. And it's funny because the most precious thing that a teacher has is actually his, her own voice because you're modeling through that. What is interesting about what this lady from Australia told me and many other people that it's this sense of curiosity that the neighboring teacher who doesn't know what's going on has and then when they peer to the, the, the glass and they see these kids standing up and interacting with one another or interacting with the teacher or playing uh, retrieval practice or a retrieval practice or tasks with the teacher doing absolutely anything and a lot of teachers of course uh, who work under a head of department who has espoused my approach often curse me because I think oh shoot now we have to make our own resources but you make them one year you keep them, store them in an organized way. Next year, they're there for you. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Like, it's so true. And people say that to me as well about trying to teach with more co-created materials and say, oh, but I have to create these. But just as you say, when you do it once and you create something, you have it, you can build on it the next year. And there's a wonderful, amazing, vibrant community of teachers out there who are constantly sharing things and, and, and delivering new materials to each other. And, and that's fantastic to bring things forward as well. And it kind of leads me on to my next question. You've touched on this already 
already, John Franco, about the importance of being motivated and engaged in the language learning process. And, and you know how much I believe in that. And I know you do, too. And that's why both of us are trying to get teachers to look at things from a different lens and teach in a slightly different way that will engage the students a little bit more. And one of the things we are seeing is that in the UK in particular, more and more students are dropping languages every year. What do you think needs to happen in order to reverse this change? Like what, what are we doing right now in our classrooms that needs to stop? And, and what kind of things do we need to, immediately need to put into place so we can reach more students and motivate more of the 90%, not the people like me and you who were real linguists and loved languages from day one, but the other 95% of kids who maybe don't think like us? Well, it's, it's a, the $1 million question, isn't it? But it's all about motivation at the end of the day. Uh, it's motivation, number one. And if you marry that with good quality uh, teaching and learning, because there's also subjective aspect to language learning, training students to become good language learners, but motivation is where it starts. And self-efficacy, as we all know, and it's great that everyone mentions self-efficacy these days, is so important. Well, we, I say we because I've done it too for many years. Number one, rushing through content, content overload. We teach too much. This idea of students being supposed to acquire grammar when we know from the most, the greatest proponent of grammar learning that only very few key kids can cope with grammar. The grammar is very difficult to transform in something which is automatized. Everyone pay lip service to, oh yeah, grammar can be automatized with practice, but nobody tells you how much practice not one hour a week or two hours a week. So the idea is really being realistic and making sure that we give students what is learnable. I always give the example in my workshops of teaching the, the perfect tense of the verb être in French, all right? Je suis allé, je suis parti, and all that. And then you have to, of course, teach them all the other pronouns and all the other forms of the verb to be. And of course, they need to know how to form past, past participles. And of course, they need to, have, uh, to apply agreement. How many kids in year eight in England, realistically, get to year eight having automatized, quote unquote, all the cognitive operations that they need in order to learn the perfect tense of être? I can tell you, maybe one out of 10 is really optimistic, yeah. but even less than that, maybe 10%. And this is what I think the big disconnect. We, as, as, as experienced language, language teachers and linguists, we have toiled many for many years before becoming fluent. But, but I don't know why we, we forget this. I had taught at university for quite a few years. And I can tell you that the people that I released, so to say, into the wild when they went for the year abroad, when they went for the year abroad, they couldn't really speak after two years of grammar, but they came back after one year in, uh, in Italy and they could speak Italian fluently to me. So what does it say? It says basically that we are not meant to learn languages whereby you have words, grammar and phonics to learn as if there were some separate entities and language learning becomes like a patchwork. Oh yeah, I give you the grammar, you glue the words together, and I teach you how to pronounce them. I mean, how simplistic and how 
primitive this view is. It doesn't work like that. I really agree with you there. And that is a major issue. And, you know, I had Dr. Ed Stevens on the podcast a, a number of months ago and he talked about this unpacking or unbecoming our, our professional identity and many of us grew up in systems that that's how languages were taught to us and we think this is how it's done so you must do as you say words and then grammar and then later we'll put it all together but just as you said like that's just not how it works it just doesn't work like that language acquisition and even a really kind of sad anecdote it was my my nephew is currently preparing for his final exams in Ireland uh, his final Spanish oral exam and I messaged him to say did he want to do a little practice or did he want to kind of chat a little bit on the phone to, do, to go over it and he said yeah that'd be great he said oh I'll let you know when and he said to be honest you know I have to learn it off by heart anyway so it's it's okay and I was just like what you know like how is that the exam that after like six years that you just have to learn some big thing off by heart how on earth is that the way that we assess acquisition just here's the grammar here's the words learn it all off by heart and then afterwards you can't do anything it just seems really crazy Liam it's, it's actually worse because what is really interesting is and this is the, the big disconnect. And to be honest, Liam, there are tons and tons of teachers who know full well that that's not the way it should happen. And that's why there's so much interest in alternative ways to go about. And that's why EPI is so popular. Not because I'm a genius, because it was my method was born out of necessity. I was working in inner city area schools and I had to find a solution because that wasn't working. It was born, if you want, as a survival strategy and then it gradually evolved what is worse is that teachers uh, not all teachers but a good chunk of teachers uh, i like the word chunk as you can see <laughs> they teach grammar 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 when they get to the exam they realize they actually the best way to succeed is for them to memorize chunks so at the end of the day, if you if you'd have to come to that realization every year, as you do uh, in year 10 and year 11, that that's the way to go. Why don't you start much earlier on in a more systematic and deliberate way, not teaching random chunks in response to answers, but chunks based on the idea that communication is about assembling chunks together to fulfill a communicative purpose. When I want to say I miss you, I'll say I miss you, darling. I hope to see you soon. How many creative ways of saying that in, in daily life can you find? When you're expressing an intention, you're bound to say I want to or I'm going to. How many people will say I have the intention of or whatever? Yeah. All these fancy phrases that we teach. So the idea is really is almost to be minimalistic, as, uh, at least in the first few years of language learning, and equip the students with that confidence, let's call it self-efficacy to be more precise, that I can actually do language because that can-do attitude is the result of a child knowing how to say things, how proud are kids when they go home in the beginning of year seven to show off their, their French and Spanish and how sad when that ends. And when does that end? Normally towards the end of year seven, beginning of year eight, when kids are starting getting input which is not comprehensible. And unfortunately, there's this bad habit of testing kids, over-testing kids. Some slides from the DFE, the Department for Education, then SELP, saying that because there's so many words to learn in their approach, there needs to be a lot of testing. 
I mean, seriously, why would a year seven, how are you going to get students to enjoy language learning where it's all about the anxiety of the next text and when it's coming along? Everyone knows that a bit of eustress is good, but when you're forced to retrieval, knowing that somebody is going to impose a judgment on you, then, of course, if you're vulnerable, you're anxious, you're not a person with a, with a high sense of self-worth, and we know that the most important thing about developing self-efficacy is being valued, that your effort is being valued, that you succeed day in, day out, slightly out of your comfort zone, that I plus one or output plus one that everyone has been talking about for ages, starting with, again, crashing, but... The idea really that is really upsetting sometimes, and you, Liam, might not be familiar with this because maybe you don't work with British textbooks as much as, as I have done, but the issue is that there's this absolute tacit obligation to complete a unit by half term. And every unit, as so in six weeks, you have to learn a whole unit that can span from identifying people, personal details, to describing people's personality and in between hair, verb to be, verb to have. I mean, seriously, how can a child do all of that, learn it, and how can somebody demand that they should perform well in a test by the end of a unit, performing maybe all four skills in a lengthy paper that might last two lessons with useless targets at the end and other lesson gone, when actually it should all be about having fun with the language. That's what language learning yes. should be. The answer to you is we need to make it more fun, meaningful fun, but yeah. meaningful, which gives a student sense of success, sense of self-worth, that they can see that other kids at their level are doing well, because that's the other issue. If you don't get that sense that peers are doing well and you got some that kind of role modeling from people who are more or less in your same uh, level of ability, you create a feeling of discouragement and disengagement. I was reading the other day a, a psychology paper about burnout, the various sort of symptoms of burnout. And one is disengagement. How many times you see kids who uh, disengagement, being cynical, uh, feeling that exhausted, feeling that you can't be bothered. Uh, how many times do you see that in colleagues? But how many times do you see that in kids who sit at the back of your classroom and they are exhausted? They don't want to listen to this word, the language that's flying around them and they can't understand. Who sit down listening and they basically just tick true or false randomly and they can't be bothered. Like you're saying so many things that make so much sense to so many people right now and, and that is exactly it and, and what there's a few things I really want to pick up on that you've said. The first one for all the language teachers listening to this is that idea of slowing down and not trying to do too much. As you said, a minimalist approach is actually really important because when you are a language learner and you're a beginner, that cognitive load and if things are incomprehensible, it really does weigh down on you. So making sure that it's fully comprehensible and as you said, making sure it's interesting, trying to put some of the students' ideas, their inputs in there, where they want to drive the class and co-creation of material. Gianfranco, we're coming towards the end of our discussion and I have a couple of other things I'd really like 
like to talk to you about. So the first one I really want to ask you about is you've talked already about chunking and you've talked about kind of building on, on processes. How do you think we can achieve fluency and proficiency in a classroom setting, particularly for those teachers who may only see their kids for, say, one and a half hours a week or two hours a week? What's your best advice to those teachers? You know, first of all, it's understanding what the concept of fluency is, because in in many quarters, there's a confusion about this. Fluency, you can be, fluency is a relative construct. You can be fluent simply with a very small pool of words which fulfill a purpose. So I can be fluent with 200, 150, even 50 words in, used to describe a person. So I can, I can actually say to somebody, I can, say, I can describe people successfully. There might be some minor mistakes, there might be some hesitation, there might be some false start, some self-repair, but the idea is that it's about producing language fast. So, hence exactly what you were saying. Number one, you need to slow to go slower. That's very important because you can recycle more. And it's all about revisiting the same words as often as possible. Another very important thing we need to understand about fluency is that learning, any learning, is task specific. So fluency is also task specific. You can't train somebody into describing pictures and then expect that they're going to be fluent in uh, talking about their mothers or uh, personality or in role play or through storytelling. If you train somebody in storytelling, they will be fluent in storytelling, which is actually a noble purpose. Then you might decide to stage a few activities which transfer that knowledge to another context, which require, again, a bit of slowing down. So the idea is you need to, at the beginning of a course, set some very specific outcomes. By the end of year seven, I want my students to be fluent in describing people through pictures or in response to an oral stimulus, a question. They're going to be doing this with at this kind of uh, pace, with possibly minor errors, which don't impede understanding. When you have a little time at your disposal, you need to be extremely specific about what you want to achieve. Not the idea that I want my student to become fluent in describing people, because that makes it much more difficult with a small amount of time and with all the different pressure a teacher gets from different corners. So it's about repeated processing. It's about ensuring that there is a a, a gradual approach. So what does fluence entail? Influence entail articulating words fast in context, connected speech. So you will have sessions where you're just focusing on developing that specific skill. So you need to create activities very much like you would do with a sprinter, whereby a person say first at a certain speed, then you can gamify this. Then you have to say in, I don't know, two minutes, then you have to say in one minute, what we call a pyramid structure uh, approach. Ways of gamifying this, for instance, is to ask kids in writing, for instance, brainstorm as many words you can in, in one minute. See if you match the, word, the sentences that the teacher uh, wrote uh, secretly on the, in the mini whiteboards. You can stage what we call linked skill activities. Linked skill activities are activities whereby you start with a reading activity, 
which becomes then a writing activity, then becomes a speaking activities, or and the listening activity, and the whole the language is recycled many times over through all the different medium through different activities. But it's they call link skill activities because although the modality changes, you hit all four skills. You are repeating exactly the same sort of language. So it's about intelligent, smart design of tasks which elicit loads of repetition, hopefully gamified, which elicit negotiation of meaning. The kids need to be conveying meaning because fluency is also about effective communication, which heed the principle of transfer appropriate processing. In other words, tasks, memory, performance is task specific, but also, and this is the most important thing, if you want your student to be fluent, you need to have space in your curriculum which is devoted to fluency. Mm. So it needs to be calculated as part of uh, your curriculum design. You need to have either holds in the curriculum, as Professor Broomfield suggests. So you have your unit, then you have a hole in the curriculum when you work on automatizing or rendering fluent what was learned in the unit. And these holds appear regularly in the curriculum. Or, as I suggest, you have a section at the end of your uh, macro unit where you bring everything together and you celebrate learning by making sure that whatever was learned and revisited constantly, so you already worked on fluence by smart recycling, you actually get, in the end, brought all together and practiced through masses of highly motivated games which force a student to process repeatedly. And another very important thing, Liam, creative cumulative texts and cumulative tasks. So that when you move from subunit one to subunit two and three and four, your texts become longer and recycle exactly what was done before. So that the students is constantly processing comprehensible input and cumulative tasks where, for instance, your guided composition go from three or four bullet points to 12, 18 at the end. And you'll find that if you do this approach, when you tell them in 10 minutes, write as much as you remember, you'll find that they develop written fluency because they can actually do it. Yeah. But again, it's about also, like you said earlier, you need to find alternative ways. You can't be set in the same mindset that it's all about the gap-filled task and the little translation. And I think that is a big thing I'm taking out of this conversation in particular is there is that over-focus on grammatical accuracy. And as you gave that lovely example of the passé composé in a year eight class and to to think that you can master the passé composé at the age of 11 or 12. And to be honest, when I heard you talk about that, even if you could, even if you're that one student... How boring has that six weeks been for you if that has been the only focus, right? Where the only thing is about making sure the E goes here and the accent goes there. 
students want to talk they want to be involved they want to learn about things they want to have fun and be engaged get up out of their seats and the grammar can be present but it doesn't need to be the focus and the core of everything we do and I think that that's a really big lesson for everyone to take out of that and I loved what you said about the fluency and the cumulative text is so important we have that in comprehensive input teaching about embedded reading so a story that starts very simple and then the story is a bit longer and a bit more complex and then a bit longer and a bit more complex and building on it really nice exactly. so I'm going to end with my last question which I do for most people who come on to the podcast I'm going to try and see if you can shorten this answer down so I'm going to, I'm going to see if you can be concise in this one I'll try yeah exactly <laughs> I find it really difficult too so I'm going to ask you for all the language teachers listening to this right now what are your key three takeaways that you want them to bring into their lessons or into their lesson planning next week if there was just three things that they could remember that they would bring to their next department meeting what would you like those three things to be well number one absolutely plan for success make sure that your students get out of your classroom your every classroom feeling victorious because once you achieve that you're halfway there there's nothing more powerful than motivation to move away from the textbooks listening tasks because unfortunately they never contain comprehensible input and comprehensible input is not just the number of words they understand is also how you say it and how fast you say it what do i mean by how you say it if i say tengo un amigo it's different from tengo un amigo I'm, gonna, I'm telling my student, pay attention to the O, like a mother would say when she corrects the child. So that's super important because you can't, if you can't listen, how on earth can you speak? And this is what really puzzles me about every textbook, because textbooks listenings don't model. Three, and to me, is the most difficult one sometimes to put across. Unless a student has become fluent in something, they will forget it, because that's how the brain works. You, the brain has evolved to automatize because when you automatize something, it doesn't occupy awareness. That means you're not engaging working memory and you're not the pianist who's looking constantly at their fingers. You want to be the pianist who doesn't look because the minute the pianist looks at the finger, they, they stop. It's like when you're trying to, uh, to, to think about what word to type, how you type a word and you look for the key. So the idea is, Make sure that by in the formative years of language learning, that when you're building the foundations, you create memories which are undestructible, that they're going to be there forever. And that only happens, according to science, not me, when students have automatic access to what they learned. And unfortunately, it's difficult because whenever you say that to people, Liam says, they say, I don't have the time. You do, because as long as there are no exams, you have all the time in the world. Better to build something that is durable and you don't have to reteach again, as we always do, in year 10, and we spend that vital time, which could be used to expand vocabulary and prepare students for exams, if that's your concern, wouldn't be mine, but if that's your concern, and, and I know that a lot of teachers want to do well in the exams, then free up space. Make sure that whatever you teach in year seven, eight, and nine, is durable, so when you get to your 10 and 11, you've got plenty of space and you don't have to rush. Unfortunately, I'm in England, the first term, and sometimes two terms of your 10, are basically devoted to revise everything that was done before because very often 
it's not there. All right. Well, listen, Gianfranco Conti, thank you so much. Uh, grazie. And Prego. I'm so, so happy to have you on the show and talk to us, talk to all of the listeners. I've learned so much. I mean, writing down some notes and I'm really happy to, to share this with everybody. Thank you. Now, of course, to the listeners, this is the Motivated Classroom podcast. We need to finish with that little Irish word of today, which was Reavera, meaning computers, something that are around us all of the time. And I'm really excited to hear what you thought of this episode. And this will be followed up with some other episodes about the language teaching classroom please do get in touch and remember if you want to support the podcast go and have a look for it on patreon.com look for the motivated classroom we'd love to hear from you and with that the motivated classroom podcast is an original production by liam printer i'm at liam printer on twitter and my youtube channel is liam printer the motivated classroom Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow the Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.